I'm John Gooding, Associate Editor at The Interpreter, and I'm sitting here with Dr. Sam Geel, a Research Fellow at the Science Policy Research Unit at the University of Sussex, an Associate Fellow at Chatham House, and Executive Editor of China Dialogue. Sam, thanks for speaking with me. Thanks, John. Uh, in an interview with the New York Times today, Donald Trump refused to repeat his pledge to ditch the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement reached last year, saying that he had an open mind to it and was uh, looking at it very closely. This is, of course, a far cry from his infamous 2012 tweet that the concept of climate change was created by and for the Chinese in order to make US manufacturing non-competitive. Uh, what does Trump's rhetorical inconsistency mean for the future of international climate change negotiations? Well, it matters. It matters what Trump says, um, because the agreement that was reached between Presidents Xi Jinping and Barack Obama in late 2014 really kind of set the groundwork for the later Paris Accord in many ways. It, it got past a potential kind of collective action problem where we weren't sure who was going to move first on climate change. And it helped to create a kind of cooperative stance that actually was unprecedented between the two world's largest emitters. So a sense of uncertainty about whether Trump was going and indeed is going to support a future Paris Accord does affect the sort of shaping of international norms around climate change. But, you know, more um, conclusively, I suppose, uh, we have to actually look at what he's going to do with his um, EPA. He's putting a uh, climate change denier, or apparent climate change denier, into the head of the transition team for the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, clearly, the Republican Party um, has a history of being opposed to environmental regulation, to action on climate change. And that's something that Trump has also campaigned on very frequently. He's talked about uh, ramping up coal, about subsidizing it again. In terms of how that actually affects the broader US-China relationship and the kind of UN climate process going forward, it's less certain. China had its own self-interested reasons to move forward on, uh, on such a, uh, an agreement, and it has its own reasons to be in the UN climate accords. I don't think there's any chance that they're going to pull back on that um, just because the, the US is less proactive. For China, climate action has very clear co-benefits. They're looking to reduce urban air pollution. They're looking to increase energy security by diversifying their energy supply and manufacturing their own energy security through uh, renewables. There's been an enormous shift in the real economy around, uh, around energy, particularly because of the scale of manufacturing around, uh, around solar, uh, because of the competition between large Chinese companies in the renewable sector. Um, and we've seen a, a consequent drop in the, in the price of renewable energy, and we've seen it really deploying at very large scales around the world. And China wants to be technology leaders in this sector. They know that in a world that will increasingly become resource-constrained, um, in a world that um, there will increasingly be climate policies put in place, uh, China actually wants to be the kind of number one suppliers of those technologies. So they see that as a, uh, as a form of kind of global technology leadership. And so there's lots of reasons why they move ahead on this, regardless, I think, of, uh, of what's happening with the UN climate uh, process. However, if the US, for example, isn't willing to commit on finance, if they're not willing to, uh, to be part of that kind of coalition, it does, uh, it does weaken certainly some of the um, adaptation measures and other sorts of measures that you'd hope to see through the, uh, through the COP. 
uh, and, the, and the UNFCCC framework. As you mentioned, China would be a prime candidate for adopting a leadership position uh, on international climate change negotiations should the US back out altogether. Uh, what do you make of China's current environment and energy policies? So China's been promoting its own raft of environmental and energy policies um, over the past 20, 30 years. Um, certainly in terms of its five-year plans, uh, over the last uh, few of those, there's been consistent measures to improve energy efficiency, to reduce the energy intensity, that is the energy consumed per unit of GDP of uh, gross domestic product. Um, and then in the last uh, couple of five-year plans to reduce the intensity of uh, carbon dioxide production in, uh, in economic growth. Now, having these plans and targets and laws and policies in place is different from implementation. And clearly, you've got to actually see whether these laws are being implemented. And over the years, there's been a, a more mixed record of, of implementation of these sorts of policies. Over the past um, you know, 20 years, often people will point to the considerable gap between central government edicts and actually the sorts of um, incentives at a local level, which often have just driven uh, economic growth at the expense of, uh, of environmental protection. But in recent years, you're seeing a considerable alignment between these quite progressive, ambitious climate targets and uh, actually what um, governments, local governments, provincial governments and so on around the country are, are looking to achieve. And that's particularly clear in areas around things like renewable energy. So we have very uh, ambitious targets on, uh, on renewables in the, uh, in the latest uh, 13th five-year plan from 2016 to 2020, in the pledge that was put forward to the UN climate process. And those targets are well on track to be achieved. Um, China's also put out a um, proposed peak on its carbon emissions before 2030, and it's very likely to come in early on that. It also likely peaked uh, in its coal production in 2013. So we're seeing a shift under what um, Chinese uh, Premier, uh, President Xi Jinping refers to as the new normal um, towards a form of uh, slower but higher quality growth away from um, extraction and more um, heavy um, manufacturing based economy towards innovation and services. Um, uh, towards the sort of things that will uh, end up with technology exports to the rest of the world and so on. And what about the role of environmentalism and, uh, I guess, general public sentiment in China? So typically China's environmental movements have really helped to push implementation at a local level. Um, and in some cases, they've actually been selectively supported by the central government who want to try and make up for that lax implementation. Uh, so we've seen it over the past 10, 15 years that um, local level NGOs, citizens groups and so on have been able to challenge often the poor implementation of environmental rules from the top. And we've seen some really uh, good examples, groups like the Institute of Public and Environmental Affairs in Beijing um, compile uh, publicly available data on air pollution, water pollution, so that uh, people can better understand the sources of, uh, of pollution around them and make challenges to international supply chains, to uh, local governments that may be overlooking large pollution sources and so on. Seen a lot of um, campaigns also in the early years against things uh, like large dam projects. In 2014, there was a, sorry, in 2004, there was a very um, uh, prominent shelving of a uh, proposed cascade of 13 dams on the New River uh, in southwest China. 
uh, that seem to be the result of public pressure. In more recent years, you've seen a lot of public pressure around air pollution, and that is often seen as one of the major drivers now for action on climate change. The space for NGOs has also grew considerably over the past sort of 15 years. Um, next year, however, we're seeing the introduction of China's first um, law regulating international NGOs. And there's quite a lot of disquiet about whether that signals a kind of closing for the political opportunity space for NGOs. It could even be that while it, were, it was the environmental civil society actors that kind of laid down the gauntlet and initially challenged the sort of pollute first, clean up later model of development that China was initially pursuing. Now, with environmental aims sort of taken up at, a, uh, at the central level and a kind of top-down approach to uh, climate action being instilled as state policy, we're actually seeing less space for civil society actors, for the sorts of, um, uh, of more progressive environmentalists who, who were driving policy before. And so that's something that a lot of people are going to be watching carefully. And certainly there's a note of uncertainty when you talk to environmentalists in China today, some of whom actually face um, more uncertainty than, than in previous years. Uh, Sam, thanks for your time. Thank you.